Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Well, hello and welcome, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Nathan Sheets, the Chief Global Macro Economist uh, or Head of Macro Research at PGM Fixed Income. Which one is it, actually? I will take either one, but I think formally it's uh, a Head of Macro Research. Well, you now, in this world, you need to be Head of Macro Research and Politics, almost. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> so where, where do we start? You know, it's been an incredible start to the year. We're only well, 11 or 12 days in, depending on where you sit in the world. We've been hoping for a recovery since the, the COVID crisis kicked off early last year. You know, what have you seen in terms of the recovery? Well, Alex, as they often say, may you live in interesting times. Uh, I think that certainly does describe where we are uh, at present. Uh, when I look at the global macroeconomic situation, uh, what I see is uh, a lot of reasons for concern when I look out uh, three or four months. But then as I look out to the middle of the year and beyond, the outlook is, is, much, is much brighter. And uh, specifically, I think that uh, the global macro picture continues to be dominated by uh, our struggles with, uh, with the coronavirus. And many parts of the world right now are seeing rising case counts, rising fatalities, and as a result of that are having to put on uh, increasing restrictions. And that is weighing on economic activity, particularly uh, in the service sector. Now, the good news is our economies have learned how to adjust to those, and the impact is not going to be as severe as was the case last spring. But nevertheless, it's a meaningful source of drag uh, on the global economy. Uh, but uh, I think that as you look out further, people are really expecting that the vaccines are going to come through. And the vaccines, coupled with uh, the monitoring fiscal stimulus that's in the system, is going to allow the global economy to post a uh, powerful uh, recovery uh, during the second half of this year and into uh, 2022. A fair amount of, of heterogeneity. The Chinese economy is obviously leading the way and some other economies in emerging Asia. I think from there, the United States and Australia uh, look to be next. Uh, Europe's lagging uh, more and uh, some of the uh, emerging markets, particularly those in Latin America, seem to be the ones that are really struggling the most. So a somewhat mixed uh, picture, but the general uh, flavor of where we are is uh, a present challenge, but uh, it looks better as you move forward. As you think about the, you know, the different parts of the world, the different continents and so forth, and their ability to deal with, with COVID, is their ability to deal with COVID based a lot on, on what fiscal support that they've had um, in terms of actually, you know, in, in the case of Australia, for example, we've been providing JobKeeper, which has helped the economy along. A number of um, other countries in Europe have done the same. US has tried to do it, hasn't worked. You know, how, do you, how much do you see that support, that, that um, monetary support, or it's, it's as in monetary in a dollar term, has that helped 
keeping the, the global economy alive? So I think the uh, fiscal support that various countries have put into place has been critical in uh, helping uh, ensure that the uh, economies are not hit uh, even harder uh, than they have been. Uh, when we look at that very powerful uh, rebound that we saw during the uh, summer of 2020, a lot of that was fueled by various kinds of fiscal stimulus. As you said, uh, support to firms and workers and uh, other kinds of, of fiscal programs. Uh, in the United States recently, we've had a bit of a struggle to put in place further fiscal stimulus. We finally, the end of December, reached agreement on that. And that's a factor that I expect will be supporting uh, the US economy during the first quarter. Now with uh, President Biden, it seems that uh, we may have uh, even some more in the spring. Uh, but it's, 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 it's critical that various countries uh, not uh, experience fiscal fatigue. It's very easy to start saying we're accumulating too much debt. Uh, it's better to start reeling it in, but I think it's critical uh, to continue to provide that support until our economies are safely on the other side. Uh, if we stop too soon and our economies uh, uh, contract sharply, we will then really see a severe deterioration in fiscal performance. So uh, uh, continuing to keep that foot on the accelerator is, is critical at this stage. It's interesting you mentioned about you know, keeping your foot on the accelerator. At the same time, we still have a lot of restrictions in terms of travel um, and, and trade is, is somewhat subdued because you can't travel. You know, I, I wonder how long will it take for that part of the market to open up and will we ever get back to the recovery sort of pre-COVID given the amount of restrictions that will probably stay in place for quite a while? So I am relatively comfortable that as uh, the vaccines are distributed, that we will see a meaningful bounce back in our services sector, including travel, transportation, uh, hotels, restaurants, entertainment, and the like. But I think as you, uh, as you point out, it's very much an open issue as to whether it bounces all the way back to where it was uh, before the pandemic or whether there's some kind of a permanent effect uh, that's felt. Uh, my personal feeling is that uh, individuals through this pandemic have learned how to live their lives differently businesses have learned how to do business differently, more reliant on virtual kinds of, of technologies. And I would expect that there will be some substitution from various face-to-face -face, uh, activities, be it entertainment or, or, or travel or conferences. There'll be some substitution away from face-to-face from -to -face toward virtual. And it's going to take a while for uh, some of these service sectors to post that full uh, recovery you uh, described. It's likely to be years. It's interesting because you, you mentioned the hotel, restaurants and travel sector. All of these places have been hit very hard. Now, if the tap gets turned back on and we've seen all this um, stimulus come back in, despite supply being basically decimated in, in the interim time, is, is that just the perfect storm for inflation to kick in as money starts chasing limited goods and, and limited services? Well, I think this is one of the big questions that central banks are thinking about. 
and that markets are struggling with uh, as we speak. That if this uh, narrative that I've articulated is correct, and during the second half of the year, there's this really solid bounce back in the economy, fueled by the vaccines, fueled by fiscal stimulus, fueled by uh, uh, households uh, who have been forced to save in some sense, disgorging their savings and starting to spend more. Uh, what does that mean for the inflation picture? And uh, I do think that there is uh, a risk that through that episode, as uh, we're bouncing back sharply, the various kinds of, of shortages and uh, production disruptions and so forth emerge. And we see some uh, temporary inflationary pressures. Now, as I say that, I'm also calling that inflation uh, an inflationary mirage, and that I think it's likely to be uh, short-lived, that the supply side of the economy will adjust to rising demand, and uh, those shortages and bottlenecks and other challenges will, will be faced. And as we're uh, moving into 2022, we'll see a resolution of that, and inflation is likely uh, to move back down again. But uh, this is a set of issues that we're watching very closely. Mm -hmm. Maybe let's let's switch to the dollar. Um, the U.S. dollar has been under a lot of pressure over the last twelve months, really since sort of March. Then it's sort of reversed and has been pulling back quite a quite a lot. Um, you know, that's that's a potential issue to affect inflation as well. How do you think about that? The role of the dollar in terms of inflation, particularly for the U.S. Well, uh, the dollar has uh, depreciated in recent months, but from my perspective, when I look at the value of the dollar over many decades, it still looks to me like a fairly strong currency. So uh, going forward, my view is that we are likely to see some further dollar depreciation. And part of this is predicated on a view that the Fed is likely to be uh, quite stimulative. Uh, for quite a while, more like the ECB uh, and the BOJ. Further, I think that as the global recovery proceeds, that we will see, uh, eventually see a strengthening in the emerging markets, and the dollar uh, is likely to fall uh, against, uh, say, the Chinese renminbi, where its economy is already very strong, and uh, uh, emerging market uh, currencies as they recover. And that will be another source of dollar depreciation. Now, in terms of what that means specifically for the US inflation outlook, what we can say is that a weaker dollar uh, translates into higher US inflation. That result and that relationship is long lived and it is robust. However, the effect of this is, is relatively limited. So uh, if you have, say, a 10% dollar appreciation, uh, it would still have uh, a short-lived and relatively modest effect on U.S. inflation. So it will push it up, but only a little bit. Mm -hmm. Now, we've seen a number of sort of corollary assets being oil, gold, Bitcoin, you know, that have now had some pretty big runs. Um, Gold's sort of slowed down, but definitely Bitcoin has continued its run despite its little pullback of late. What do you make of, of those assets in terms of their returns vis-a-vis -vis the dollar? 
So uh, my sense is that as we see assets like gold and Bitcoin uh, rise sharply in value, it is a sense of uh, uh, that investors are in a place where they are lacking confidence in many of the sovereign currencies. You know, if you're uh, bullish on the United States and worried about Europe, then you buy the dollar. If it's the other way around and you like Europe, then you buy the euro. But where do you go if you have concerns about all of the major sovereign currencies? And I think the answer is increasingly into gold and, and Bitcoin. Uh, so I think it is, uh, in some sense, a, a safe haven play and a portfolio diversification play. But in addition, another critical part uh, of the argument, and I think a critical support for gold and Bitcoin has been the fact that uh, rates in the major currencies are extraordinarily low. So the lost carry uh, that's implied by holding gold or Bitcoin now is, is, is very limited. And I think you put all of that together and it's made the case for gold and Bitcoin uh, uh, stronger. Finally, let me say uh, that I think particularly for Bitcoin, but probably for gold as well, there's also a speculative element to it. And uh, uh, that speculative element has uh, been uh, enticing, let's put it that way, to uh, some investors. I wouldn't want to say that one asset or another was uh, approaching a bubble, but one has to wonder when you see uh, particularly some of the Bitcoin uh, prices. Speculation is a weird one. Alan Greenspan, unfortunately, learned the hard way around uh, calling bubbles. Uh, it uh, really, uh, it's, it's resonated for many years that he was very, very wrong that it can continue on for, for many years. That's, that's absolutely right. Uh, uh, and, and that's one of the features of, of gold and Bitcoin is it's hard to say what are the underlying fundamentals that should be valued. If you're looking at a stock, then you know it's the flow of earnings. If you're looking at a bond, then you know it's the probability that you're going to be repaid and what that, uh, what that uh, coupon looks like. But what are the underlying fundamentals that you value when you're thinking about, uh, about Bitcoin? And uh, I think that's the sense in which Bitcoin uh, has a, uh, uh, an element of speculativeness uh, to it. We've also seen a little bit more interest around the tips, the inflation-protected treasuries, um, as people have been more concerned. What, what's your thinking there around um, this you know, asset class as, as a, a way to maybe also be defensive, but al also then protect against inflation? So my, uh, my feeling is that this uh, uh, allocation uh, into tips is a portfolio diversification play. And uh, I think that uh, investors are hedging the possibility that we could have some volatility and in inflation. And uh, while I think in the markets, I think uh, certainly this is true when you look at nominal rates, that the baseline expectation is that inflation is going to stay uh, well contained, that there is a counter view that uh, uh, some investors are worried about that uh, as we go through uh, uh, this period of recovery, that we could see some higher inflation. And then over the medium to longer term, that stimulative central banks, that the central banks may actually be successful and uh, inflation may uh, surprise us on the upside. My feeling in contrast is that 
the same structural factors like demographics and productivity, growth and automation and deleveraging that kept uh, uh, inflation low before the pandemic will be in play after the pandemic. But how the, the economy evolves and the lay of the land on the other side of this episode uh, very much remains to be seen. And I think uh, uh, demand for tips reflects some of that uncertainty. You just briefly touched on, on central banks and there's been a lot of sort of concern around central banks almost using up their, their quiver. Um, there's nothing left. Um, what's your thinking there in terms of central banks' ability to, to continue to stimulate if things don't go as planned for the rest of this year? So uh, I feel that central banks are uh, in it to the end, that they will continue to stimulate until we are on the other side of the pandemic. And uh, I don't think they give up until uh, they get the uh, inflation back up to target. Now that leaves me uh, in a place where I think there will be stimulating for a long time because the structural forces that are working on inflation, I think are, are likely to be uh, very, very powerful. Now, the question is that, well, how effective are the tools that central banks have is a very interesting one. Uh, so uh, on the one hand, one would never want to underestimate the uh, commitment and the creativity of the central banking community. We saw uh, the central bankers move in extraordinary ways through the spring uh, during the early stages of the pandemic to provide support. But the reality is that these major central banks are at the zero lower bound uh, with, uh, with their policy rates. And they are now using other tools and those other tools are having an effect but there's nothing that's as powerful as cutting that policy rate, as moving the policy rate. And they're in the world of the second best or the third best. So I would say uh, if, if policy rates are extremely powerful, tools like forward guidance and asset purchases uh, are only moderately powerful. Uh, and for what it's worth, I'd, I'd say uh, negative rates uh, uh, seem to be a very mixed bag. And uh, I wouldn't expect uh, to see them proliferate further uh, in the world relative to uh, where they are today. And in particular, I don't think that the Fed would move in that direction. Well, we've seen over the last really six months that the 10-year has started to tick up. Um, we, we broke 1%. And you know, maybe a few years ago, that was seen to be, you know, not a non-event, but given where and how low we've been, that is a, a bit of an event. Is that a bit of a pushback, do you think, against central banks and their ability to take rates negative? So uh, I, I look at it largely as uh, a reflation play where consistent with uh, this view that we're going to have a successful distribution of the vaccine, uh, that the economy is going to recover and that inflation for a while at least will be somewhat higher and that uh, markets are pricing that and uh, rates are rates are rising. So uh, as, what that means for central banks, I think broadly speaking, is good news uh, in that what they're trying to achieve is stronger economic outcomes, uh, higher growth, uh, more employment, 
And their expectation is that in that environment, uh, uh, that we'll have less uh, uh, downside inflationary pressure. So on the one hand, you're probably right. It probably does mean it will be harder to go negative. But the flip side of that is it, it signals a stronger economy and may also mean that there's less need to go negative. It's an interesting balancing act, though, because if I think about it and, and the economy does start to recover and interest rates keep ticking up a little bit more, you've got risk, as, risk assets that are so, heavy, you know, so highly priced, it, they're on tender hooks. Well, uh, how the, uh, how the uh, broader risk markets respond to these higher rates, I think you're right, is an important issue. Uh, again, I think that, uh, I think that uh, credit and equities will respond fine to higher rates if it's coming in the context of a stronger economy. Uh, if, it's, if, it's, if it's happening for other reasons or technical reasons, I think that's more of a risk. But uh, equities, equities benefit ironically and uh, credit as well uh, from low rates, but they, they also uh, benefit uh, from, a, from a stronger economic uh, performance and a stronger economic picture. Now, we can't have a conversation in the new year without talking about the impact of politics. And um, politics has been in the media every single day, actually, for, for the last four years, and it continues to this date. Curious to get your thoughts around, you know, the, the impact of politics now on the markets. You know, is this now another stimulative wave that's coming through? And there was a lot of concerns that if the Democrats end up taking both the House and the, the Senate, which they basically got control of, that they will then continue to stimulate even more. What's your thinking in the current situation um, from, an, from a political standpoint on, on its effect on markets? Well, Alex, you're absolutely right. Uh, these days, I do spend a lot of my time uh, thinking about uh, political forces and how they interact with, uh, with the economic outlook. Uh, so uh, I think that the uh, Biden administration is likely to push pretty hard for uh, another stimulus package I think that's likely to be on the order of a trillion dollars uh, more in addition to the 900 billion that was approved in December. I think it will include uh, more direct checks to households, uh, some further extension of uh, unemployment benefits and money for state and local governments. Uh, later in the year, I'd expect that uh, the administration is gonna make a big push for infrastructure to try to support the medium term uh, uh, growth capacity of the US economy and the efficiency of the economy. Uh, and you're absolutely right that uh, uh, as part of that, uh, if they're successful and there will be plenty of challenges in Congress in getting all of this done, but if they're successful, uh, that means more, more issuance and more treasury supply. Uh, my feeling is that uh, that will be absorbed in the markets and is unlikely to be a driver of U.S. rates over the medium to long run. But over the course of, uh, of, of weeks and a few months, uh, it could cause uh, some hiccups and uh, cause rates to be a little higher for a while than they would be otherwise. But my feeling is that more of the fundamental macro drivers 
will reassert themselves uh, over, over, say, a six to 12 month window. It could be, you know, a little up and down as all of this additional issuance is digested. You didn't mention uh, some of the intended tax changes that are, that are likely to come from a Biden administration. Um, that was seen to be quite negative um, to markets. You know, how do you think about um, some of their other policies that are a bit more restrictive um, and, and their impact? So in general, my feeling is that uh, uh, tax increases are going to be a real challenge to get through. Uh, uh, aligning uh, the sufficient uh, political support and congressional support is likely to be a meaningful uh, challenge for the, the Biden administration. You know, if they're successful, I think it will be a relatively limited set of initiatives. I think that we'd see uh, some moderate increase in the corporate tax rate. Uh, Trump uh, reduced it from 35% to down to uh, 21%, maybe we'd see it move up to 26%. Uh, we could see uh, some increase in uh, the top tax rates for households and uh, a bit of an increase in the uh, estate tax or the inheritance tax. Now, another really interesting issue on the tax fronts, which goes in the opposite direction, is that the Trump tax cuts phased out the ability of households to be able to deduct their state and local taxes, except for a very small carve out. And uh, amongst the Democrats, uh, that was not a very popular move. So it's also possible that these tax hikes might uh, also be accompanied by the increased deductibility of state and local taxes, which could be a, a, a significant offset to the contraction. So uh, putting all of that together, my feeling is that the Biden administration, uh, if they're successful, and as I said, I think it will be very challenging, uh, it would be done later in the year when the economy was otherwise quite strong and able to absorb it. Uh, I think moving in that direction of, of higher taxes during the spring when things are still kind of soft uh, would be a significant downside risk to the economy. On the other hand, things are likely to look much better in the fall. So if they are able to line up the political support, uh, I, I wouldn't see it for stalling uh, a recovery. The political landscape is still uh, very, very challenging. You, know, you, you look at the House and there's a very small majority, uh, probably one of the smallest in recent years. The Senate is 50-50 with the vice president holding the, the final uh, casting vote, you know, it's it, it's still going to be difficult to get things through as you've tried to to illuminate there. It's um it's it's not easy, um, and there's going to always be descendants as uh, or dissenters that, that want to push back on things. So I do really wonder um how how many things they can get through, um, given that this is a is a great time for people to showboat and try to put their name up um in, in these types of errors. So it's difficult, particularly when you've got such a challenged macro backdrop. It's going to be uh, uh, really difficult for the Biden administration to get legislation uh, through the Congress. When you have a 50-50 Senate, you literally need all 50 of them to vote uh, in favor. And frankly, just getting all 50 of them in Washington into the Capitol to vote 
is going to be a challenge. And you've got to get them all to agree. And as I say that, every one of them knows they're a kingmaker. So they hold out for their pet project uh, uh, and, and look for uh, uh, compromises and uh, concessions from the party. It's going to be really challenging. And uh, further, as you point out, Alex, uh, the, the majority that Nancy Pelosi has to work with in the House is very narrow. And the moderates there are asserting themselves in ways that was not the case in the previous Congress. So you put all of that together, I think that they have a chance of getting some stimulus through, uh, maybe, maybe some infrastructure, and the taxes are going to be really, really tough. But uh, uh, I think the Biden administration and the Congress are mainly going to focus on job one, we will defeat, we will conquer the virus. And uh, we'll do a little uh, stimulus if necessary, but we will conquer the virus and we'll run on that in 2022. And uh, I think the hope in 2022, if they can run on that kind of a platform, that they'll be able to expand their majorities in both houses of Congress and then do more uh, uh, during the following two years. 2022 definitely sounds like a, a long way away, though. In in any case, it's been a very long 12 Hopefully months. Hopefully we make it. <laughs> boy, oh boy. One one particular appointment that I wanted to to flag is is Janet Yellen, um, now being the, well, a potential appointment being the, the head of the, the Secretary of the Treasury. Um, as a former Fed chair, is this the total completion between the, the central bank and, and Treasury? There's always been this concern that, Trump was pushing too much on Mnuchin to run the Treasury. Now we've almost got a, a direct convergence between the two. What's your thoughts? No one knows the Federal Reserve System better than Janet Yellen. Uh, I think you could go down the list, and I'm not sure there's a single job uh, at a senior level inside the Federal Reserve System that Janet Yellen hasn't held. Now, as I say that, I think it's also important to emphasize that Janet Yellen is somebody who will have deep respect for Federal Reserve independence. So she knows Jay Powell's job, but I think she will also respect his, his independence. Uh, and uh, I think that's particularly the case for monetary policy. But then when we step back and think about, well, what about other areas where the central bank and the treasury might collaborate. For example, like uh, financial regulatory policy. And it's also uh, increasingly the case that with, uh, with monetary policy in the United States, and I said many other places pinned at the zero lower bound, it's increasingly important for fiscal policy to stay in play. So will Janet Yellen be well-placed to have that conversation with Jay Powell, on the one hand, being respectful of the central bank, as I said, but on the other hand, speaking about how can fiscal policy and government action more broadly complement what the Federal Reserve is trying to do, uh, she'll be in a place where uh, I think she'll be able to help coordinate other aspects of government policy, including fiscal policy, in ways that will be supportive uh, of the Federal Reserve's uh, pursuit of, uh, of uh, 2% inflation and low unemployment. So final question, you know, we, we're at the start of the year. 
What are probably the the bright lights? I know there's a lot of negative uh, potential signals that we could look at. What are the the bright signals that we could look to towards the end of the year of things changing that you know make you more comfortable with the economic backdrop? So uh, the uh, the situation with the vaccine really, I think, is the key question uh, for twenty twenty one. Uh, if we get that uh, distributed, I think that there is significant uh, upside potential uh, for the U.S. economy, for the global economy, uh, and uh, what that might look like. I think it could be very positive and constructive for households around the world. I think it could be very constructive and positive for many businesses. And uh, I think that it will uh, be uh, a world where there will be plenty of demand uh, for global trade and uh, likely one where we will see meaningful capital flows that will help support the recovery in some of the emerging markets to lag. So uh, when I look out uh, uh, for the coming year, uh, I think the vaccine is the key. We've got to get it distributed. We've got to get it distributed quickly uh, and efficiently. Uh, but I think that uh, once we do, the scope uh, for bounce in, uh, in spending is quite substantial. All right. That's a fantastic place to leave it. Thank you very much for your time today, Nathan. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.